welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. All right, good morning one more time. Um, We're going to start with our first Advent reading of this season. So Advent comes from the Latin words meaning the coming. This Christmas season, we will celebrate an age-old tradition of lighting a new candle on the Advent wreath each Sunday. Each candle represents a gospel gift given to us through faith in Jesus. Hope, peace, love, and joy. We, w- we light these candles in anticipation of both the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas and in his imminent return in the future. The light of each candle reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world. Today we light the first candle, the candle of hope. With Christians around the world, we light this candle as we prepare our hearts and minds for the celebration of Christmas. May this light be a symbol of hope that is found in Jesus alone. Isaiah 9:2 says, the people who walked in the darkness having seen a great light, those who lived in a land of deeper darkness, on them light has shined. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading through 1 Peter 1, 3, 5. I'm going to be reading Portuguese. 1 Peter 1, 3, 5. 1 Pedro 1, 3, 5. 3. Bendito seja Deus e Pai de nosso Senhor Jesus Cristo, que segundo a sua grande misericórdia, nos gerou de novo para uma esperança viva, pela ressurreição de Jesus Cristo dentre os mortos, for, para uma herança incorruptível, incontaminável e que se não pode murchar, guardada nos céus para vós que, mediante a fé, estáis guardados na virtude de Deus para a salvação já prestes para se revelar no último tempo. Essa foi a palavra de Cristo. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you once again for the opportunity we have to be here present with you. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to tell us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. You can be seated. That was awful. Good morning. There's very few of us today. So, um, so my name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. If you're new, welcome. I'm excited that you're here. Obviously, we've kicked off the Christmas season. Boston's starting to look Christmassy. Um, the weather is changing. Um, and I couldn't have probably written this script any better because when we look at the weather today and it's kind of dreary and makes me want to take a long nap. Uh, I won't. Um, we're talking about hope today. And the concept of hope requires something difficult. If we don't have something to place our hope around or our hope isn't being challenged, then it doesn't really exist. And so we know that we have hope when things, that are, when things hard start happening and then we're able to get through those in a way that would be honoring to the Lord. And so, you know, things like this where it's like, okay, it's kind of dreary outside. Um, 
what does the light of the world look like and how do we handle things like this and, and that kind of thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read this in English. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to kind of dive right in here. Um, it begins this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're like, that's not much to start with, but it is. Blessed be, the, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a couple of things here that I want to describe before we start talking about hope. Last week, I talked a little bit about hope in the introduction. A little bit. And one of the things that I threw out to you was that hope isn't an emotion. It isn't um, this feeling. It's something that's grounded in something, meaning our hope is placed in something. It's, it's beyond just, oh, I feel a certain way. It has to be grounded in something. And so the, the beauty of our hope or the strength of our hope is dependent upon what it's grounded in. And I used this example a little bit last week. So we have all placed our hope in certain things. You've placed your hope in relationships. You've placed your hope in people. You've placed your hope in money. You've placed your hope in maybe a business. You've placed your hope in a job. And I'm just going to write your story because it's my story as well. And all of that hope that you've placed in those things at some point has failed you. Because we do. The church at some point will fail you. I at some point will fail you. And so whatever it is that we choose to place our hope in, it can create emotion. It can create this, this, this picture of maybe an ideal future that's coming. But the reality is that hope has to be grounded in something that's sure. And what we find in our world is there really isn't anything sure. One of the things that I have learned in my years is that the one thing that you can count on is that things will always change, right? always. We're always going to disappoint each other. We're always going to have issues. There's always going to be trials and tribulations. Um, we own a house. If you've ever owned a house or you've ever been a landlord, which is even worse maybe, you know it's like, man, it's always something, right? Always something. There's always something that you have to do. There's always the next thing. It feels like, oh, were we ever going to come out of, you know, up and breathe out of the water? It just feels like the next thing is constantly hitting us. And we understand that. And it shocks us sometimes. So in light of all of that, oftentimes when we talk about something like hope, it becomes very easy to say, I don't really know how to, how to place my my hope in something that isn't going to fail me because everything in my experience has. And with that kind of on our minds, we begin this passage with blessed be the God of our Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The object of our hope is important. And right at the very beginning of this passage, Peter describes this individual in a very powerful way. So let's look at this. It says, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord. Lord refers us to the creator. The one that's sovereign. The maker. The one who's in control. So as we look at Jesus being described here, the first word that he is described in this passage is Lord. He is God Almighty. We know that. We know that at Christmas time, it says that 
He's described as Emmanuel or God with us. He literally comes born in the flesh. He is God. He is all-powerful. He is mighty. The name Jesus actually translates as Savior. So we have this individual who is described as Lord, God, Sovereign, Almighty, but also Savior. And then Christ basically translates as the Messiah. The one that's been promised for so long to come to make a difference in the world. So when you think about this descriptive, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're describing this individual who we know we're celebrating is going to be born, or we're celebrating the fact that he was born in these descriptives. He is God, he is Savior, and he is the Messiah. He is everything. When we think of Jesus this way, it begins to redefine our view of why we can place our hope in something so amazing. We can attribute all of the attributes of God to Jesus, meaning he never changes. He doesn't lie. Everything he says is truth. Everything's grounded in not that's not being dictated by what culture says it's being dictated by what actually God says truth is. So when we look at Jesus, we look at something that's solid, that is immovable, that is immutable, that is sovereign. And then the best word in this whole passage as far as I'm concerned is our This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is ours. And we are His. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you, a bunch of things happen here. You get adopted in. You know that you, you, you have personal relationship with Him. You're restored to the Father. We talked about justification last week. This idea that Jesus is ours and we are His is irreplaceable. It can't be thwarted. It's there. So we have this descriptive right off the bat of who Jesus is. Just in his name, he's described as something that's immovable and something that um, cannot change. And then we're reminded right at the beginning that he's ours, that we're his, that there's this relationship that does not change. And once again, oftentimes when we think about that relationship, we attempt to compare that to the relationships that we have on earth. So sometimes it gets a little bit muddled in thinking about our relationship with Jesus, but because of who Jesus is, the fact that he's ours, the fact that um, he never changes, it changes everything in the form of the relationship and the way that the relationship functions. So right off the bat in this passage, we have this descriptive of who Jesus is and, who, and, and whose he is. And then we get, as we move forward, it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born through a, into a living hope. I, I spent a lot of time this week processing through what this means, a living hope. How do I describe this? And there's kind of two facets to this that make sense to me in my study. 
The first is that Jesus himself is living. It says that we're brought into this living hope because of Jesus' resurrection, that death didn't thwart Jesus, that though he took all of the sin of all who would believe on him at the cross and literally died, death could not hold him. Acts 2 describes this fact that even though at that moment he would have been considered um, the actual wrath of God, that the wrath of God was poured on him, death could not hold him. Death could not hold him. And so Jesus is living. The scriptures say that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. The scriptures tell us that he's going to come back someday. So we celebrate an advent that has happened in the past, but we also celebrate the fact that there's an advent coming in the future. I, I can't get over this. Like, when you think of every single religion in the world, its founder is dead. There's... There's no hope in placing our faith in something that has died just like we're going to. But when we talk about a living hope and we're talking about the aspect that Jesus is actually alive. So he's God, he's Savior, he's Messiah, he's ours, and he's living. All of those descriptives create this this hope that's be, it's being able to be placed in something that isn't dead. And then the scriptures remind us that because death couldn't hold Jesus, in Christ, death won't hold us. There's hope in that. Why? Because it's already happened. But then there's another component of this living hope. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, it says that you're born again that the old passes away and the new is there. The Old Testament describes it as your heart of stone is removed and you're given a heart of flesh. There's a a new person created. uh, the, The Apostle Paul describes it as the old flesh is removed and a new body is given. There's the, all of these analogies of there's this transformation that takes place, a metamorphosis. It's as if you've been born again in Christ. Whereas being lost in our sin, it's, the scriptures describe it as being chained to sin, that we're hopeless, that we're lost in darkness. Jesus comes, the light pierces the darkness, and through faith in him, like we talked about last week in justification, we are brought into light, into new life with a living hope. Meaning our life isn't thrown away. And that's unbelievable to think about. And I was thinking of once again about other just belief systems in the world. They become so humanized in the aspect that they basically ground themselves in one of two things. The first is you need to find yourself or you need to empty yourself completely so that you can become one with something else, right? It has nothing really to do with you. And then the other concept would be you need to work to please something that's a higher power than you, or you need to earn your way to a certain place, or if you do more good than bad, then there's gonna be this kind of scale thing that... But Jesus isn't like that. 
This living hope means that your life actually has purpose. That he comes and he doesn't just say, hey, I've come to save you for the death and the resurrection that's going to come in the future, but I've actually come to resurrect you now. That your life has value, purpose, meaning, that you can actually participate currently in what the Lord is doing throughout the world. There's this new life that's given to us, a new living hope, where our life might have felt hopeless before Jesus, but after Jesus, the thing that a Christ follower can never, ever say is that we don't have hope. That our life has no meaning. That our life has no purpose, because it does. You're grounded into a living hope where you say, my life is now about Christ and he works through me through the power of his Holy Spirit to live the life that I've been called to live. We do find purpose in Christ. So we have this living hope that's grounded in the fact that Jesus lives and then we have a living hope that's grounded in the fact that Jesus lives in us. And he says, I want your life to be abundant. I want your life to be filled with joy. You live in sin-cursed bodies and sin-cursed world, but because your hope is grounded in something that can never change, because you know the hope that you have in this current life with a purpose to live for Jesus in joy, and because you know that you have a future hope with him forever, that's when things get emotional. That's when things change. You have been called into a living hope. If I were to kind of just stop here and go, okay, let's process through your week. How did your living hope go? Meaning, was your life a reflection of the hope that you possess in Christ to others? Or did you potentially just display death like everyone else? Misery. No hope. When we talk about a lack of hope, the opposite, obviously, of having hope would be to hope, be hopeless. And I mentioned this a little bit last week as well, that it's hopelessness that takes us to a point where we believe that we have no value and no future. When you feel hopeless, you have no step to take forward. It's you, you, everything becomes internalized. It's just, I don't even know what to do from here. And we've all felt that way before because as I've described before, you've placed your hope in something that has failed you and then you feel kind of stifled and paused and going, okay, I had so much hope in that coming to fruition and it didn't happen, so now what do I do? And that's part of life, right? But in Christ, we're constantly reminded that even though those things will happen, the hope that we have grounded in a living hope of Jesus can never be taken from us. It's always there. And as we look at the rest of this passage, what's phenomenal about it, it's going to describe this hope. And it uses some words. Verse 4, it says this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Your hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Why? Because it's grounded in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully the circle's starting to make sense. But let's look at these words. 
Your hope grounded in Jesus Christ is imperishable. I went last night, I was hungry, I wanted a snack. And so I went to the fridge and I like apples. So I went and there was like three apples in our little drawer, right in the fridge. And I opened it up and I pulled one out. And so for me, I know some of you don't mind soft, like kind of mealy apples. I hate that. I like a crisp, cold apple. Like I want it to crunch. And so typically I'm a decently strong guy, so I can hold an apple in my hand. And if I can squeeze it and it moves at all, it's not for me. Right. And so I pick this thing up and I squeeze it and my hand just like impress, you know, goes into it. I'm like, hey, that's nasty. And I throw it away. And then I get the next one and it does the exact same thing. And then I get the last one and it was the worst one because it just absolutely, like I made applesauce. Right? And I'm like, okay, so I'm not having an apple, right? The thing about fruit, I don't know, here, another example, you guys know about bananas, right? If you put anything by a banana, it tends to ripen it quickly, right? So I'm from California, big deal are avocados. They come from Mexico, they're delicious, right? Here, you get an avocado, it's the wrong color and it's hard like a rock. But what you can do is get an avocado that's hard like a rock and the wrong color and stick it next to a banana and within a day or two, it's going to look and feel and taste like it's supposed to. There's something in the banana. The reason this works is because it's perishable. Like perishable means that there's a certain amount of time that this thing is going to live at its height, right? I, I debated whether I'm gonna tell you this story or not, but I'm going to, even though it might make you sick a little bit. Um, so I had a, a moment of perishable, like when I really understood perishable. I had walked, we were living in California, I'd walked into Christie's mom's kitchen and I was wanting something sweet and I opened the fridge and inside was a can of whipped cream. And I thought, oh, whipped cream shot sounds wonderful. So I grabbed the can of whipped cream and I shake it and I lean my head back and I squirt it in and the stuff that came out was awful right into my mouth, right? And so now I'm gagging and I'm squirting it into the, and it's green and it's chunky and it's nasty, right? And then I was like, Christy, come give me a kiss. <laughs> perishable. When we think of something perishable, what we think of is something that can rot. Something that over time has lived out its life and is no longer of use or value to us. Your hope in Christ is described as the exact opposite of that. It is the can of whipped cream that you can always take a shot from. <laughs> it's the apple that you go to in the fridge and it's perfect. It's the avocado that every time you get it, it is the perfect consistency and texture and flavor and color. It's imperishable. It doesn't expire. Now, we have expiration dates on things and we take those very seriously. Right? Like if you get a jug of milk and you see an expiration date on it and it's past that expiration date, no, longer, no, no matter how long you've had it, there's something in your head where you go, is this thing going to be good or not? Now, I believe that the dairy industry has probably said, we need to sell some more milk so we can up this a little bit. But there's something about a, that date when we see it on there and go, this is no longer going to be good after this date where things start messing in our head. 
Like, I'll taste it, and I'm like, okay, it says it expires today, and it seems to taste fine. Christy, can you taste this? Can you smell this? Like, is this gone? Because there's something in my head that says this thing's going to expire. Your hope in Christ never expires. It's, it's a phenomenal thing to think about. That it's not grounded in the circumstances that are going on around you. That outside influences like a banana on fruit don't impact the longevity of our hope in Christ. It, it's not grounded in what somebody else thinks or what the new technology is or where AI is pushing. It says it's imperishable. Now, here's the, here's the, once again, it, it's so interesting because we don't know anything imperishable besides this. You're perishable. I'm perishable. Relationships are perishable. Food's perishable. I mean, everything that we have in our existence, we build amazing structures, and over time, they crumble. If you ever see some of these, if you go to see the pyramids, right, they're unbelievable. It's overwhelming to think how these things were built. And even with the amount of people they talk about, like, how is this even done? But you see that over time, the weather has hit them and things have crumbled and stones have broken. But your hope in Christ is described as imperishable. The next word that's used is undefiled. Undefiled. Defilement means that something has become corrupt or impure. There's something that, when I think of pure, the best thing I've got is I think of a wedding day, right? And a woman walking down the aisle in all white. Whether she's pure or not, it looks pure, right? You have this picture in your head of pure. I think of pure um, when we put clean sheets on the bed. Do you know this feeling? And it's like that first night in them and you get in and they have that perfect like coldness but not too cold and you get in and you're like, oh, it feels clean and undefiled and I'm gonna sleep so good, right? You think of character or oftentimes we can associate a uh, defilement with like a sin where oh, I've, I've blown it and I feel violated or defiled. It, it's an impurity that's been brought into something. <laughs> it says that your hope in Christ is described as undefiled. It's undefiled. It can't be corrupted. And now here's where things get so cool. Because I believe in, in, once again, just my experience, you go, well, how is it even possible for human beings to view a hope in Jesus as defiled? And I think there's a couple ways that can happen, but I think the most common is this. You actually, at times, believe that your sin can defile your salvation. Mm. Right? Like, we actually believe at times that 
our faith in Jesus isn't enough and what he did on the cross isn't enough and my declaration of him as Lord and Savior isn't enough and then when I blow it, his penalty on the cross wasn't enough. Therefore, my sin becomes something that can defile the salvation that Jesus has promised me. And we forget that all of the penalty for that sin has already been paid for. There's... There's a, a, a point when we sin, of course, that we have to repent and there's loss and there's discouragement and there can be um, sadness, but we know in Christ, through repentance, everything gets, can be recovered in a relationship. However, when we take that concept and we put it onto our salvation and believe that it can be defiled, then it can create in us a lack of hope in the truth of the gospel. It can't be defiled. And you can't do it. It doesn't matter when somebody stands up and says, well, you know what? I read this book and it's really hard for me to believe. That doesn't defile it. Because it's true. And it comes from the creator, the source, the the creator of all things, the one that is always true. Nothing can defile your hope in Jesus. Nothing can remove you from his hand. Once you're his, we get back to the beginning. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God, our Savior, our Messiah. Nothing can remove that. It can't be defiled. And the last word that is used here, it's unfading unfading when you think of fading i always think of like sometimes we want things to fade um jeans at times look better when they're faded right i have an old red Sox cap that looks way better since it's faded a bit and it's all kind of torn that's the way it should look right but when we think of fading what we think of is like there's a loss of vibrancy there's a loss of color There's a wearing and tearing that's happened over time. I I was talking to a guy uh, this week who works in replacing windows, and oftentimes the biggest struggle is they'll come in, they'll replace a window in a condo or apartment or a house, and they're trying to match the color of the outside. And the biggest struggle is not finding the original color, it's finding a color that matches the fading that's already taken place. So when you're attempting to match something on a 20-year-old building, it's not its original color anymore because the sun has been beating on it and it's faded. So they go, we have to find a match that matches the fading, not the original. Because over time, things wear. They, they fade. I'm really hard on shoes. I don't know why. I have really ugly feet, though. So maybe that has something to do with it. I walk goofy, like all of that, right? But I'm really hard on shoes. And so I can find this pair of shoes and I'm like, man, I love these shoes so much. But it gave me four months in them and they're gonna need to go in the garbage because I'm gonna need a new pair of shoes because I'm hard on shoes. Things fade. They seem to have a, a certain longevity and we have expectations for things to fade. Your cell phone eventually, regardless, will become obsolete, right? It happens. If you're an Apple person, 
right? They keep updating. And pretty soon they update to a point where your old unit can no longer handle the update that they've created. It's brilliant marketing. <laughs> but at the same time, you're going, okay, I know that this thing that I'm purchasing and investing in is going to have, it's gonna fade over time, right? Scripture describes our hope in Jesus as unfading. The vibrancy of our hope in Christ always remains the same. I think of it this way, because it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Like there's moments in our life where you go, I feel like my relationship with Jesus is we're like this. Like I'm praying and I feel the Holy Spirit moving. And when I pray, I'm watching things happen. And, and it seems like there's this connection and everything that I'm doing, I just feel connected to him and, and I feel his presence and he's there. And I describe it as like a holy hug, right? There's moments where I'll actually pray like, Lord, like I, it feels like you're just hugging me and I thank you. But then we also have moments where it feels like you're distant. Where you pray and like your prayers just hit the ceiling. Where it feels like he's far away, where it doesn't seem to matter how much energy you put into it, it feels like it's different, like something has faded. And if you've walked with Christ very long, you have these ebbs and flows like this, where it feels, what you wanna call it hot and cold, or however you want to describe it. But the reality is this, Jesus never fades. So when it feels like things have faded, then we have to go back to the hope that we have in Christ, understanding that it is unfading. Therefore, if something has changed, then we don't look at God, we look at what? Here. So, like in any relationship, if I feel distant from my wife, Christy, there's one of two things that has transpired, right? One of us is distant. Maybe both of us are distant. But the relationship's still there. We're still married. In order to rekindle this, we, one of us or both of us may need to have to take a step back to where we have that emotion that it's still there, but the marriage is still there. I still have a ring on my finger. God never changes, he never moves, he never fades, he's always present. He's always there when you need him. He's always there when you think you don't need him. He doesn't, he doesn't take naps. He doesn't get overwhelmed like, oh, sorry, I was doing this over here. Like I didn't, I didn't hear that. It's, he's, he's always the same, always present everywhere, always focused on you. Always. So when we get to this point, we go, man, it feels like it's faded. Typically, if somebody says that to me, then I'm reminding of me of myself. Oh, okay, well, then you took a step. And what you need to do is take a step back. There's not a fading in our hope. There's not a fading in our relationship with Jesus. It's not supposed to feel that way. I love the passage of Scripture that reminds us that every day is a new day in Christ. Do you realize, I mean, okay, so a little bit about my personality. I have adrenaline issues, okay, I do. I want to move fast, and I want to do things that I'm not supposed to do, and I wanna feel that adrenaline rushing through me, right? I like fast-paced stuff. I'm learning to slow down a little bit, but it's hard for me, so I have to force myself to do it. 
All of these things just move, 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 move. So oftentimes when I feel like the Lord isn't moving at the pace that I want him to, then I'll feel like we're distant. And what, I'll realize, what I've realized, hopefully in wisdom over time, is when I get to feeling that way, knowing I cannot outrun Jesus, <laughs> that I do need to slow down. Because I'm forgetting. It's, it's, it's almost like I, I'm forgetting the, the joy and the hope that I have because I'm making this lifestyle or this quick pace or whatever it is the idol. And then I think, well, Jesus, why aren't you keeping up with me? Right? And so it feels like there's this fading. Um, I can get to a place sometimes where I'm like, Jesus, if you won't do it, then I will. Right? And for those of you who have personalities like me, you get that. And then it feels like there's this distance. And what I've realized is I've stepped aside instead of stepping closer. So for those of you who may not have that personality, it's the same kind of concept. Um, on the other extreme, I hear people say all the time, like, they don't seem to do anything. Well, Jesus seems far, and he seems far away. And I'm like, well, let's just walk through some things. So I haven't seen you at church in six months, and you tell me your prayer life is terrible, and you're not in community, and so there's some issues here, right? So if he's feeling far, it's not that he's moved, it's that you're putting no effort into actually seeing him. Or you're asking him to meet you on your terms instead of saying, he's already written how I relate to him. I'm supposed to spend time in the word. I'm supposed to spend time with fellow believers. I'm supposed to be focused on his glory and not my own. All of those things remind us of the vibrancy of relationship with him, that life is new every day. Because I have those general issues, that speaks to me. I'm like, I can wake up in the morning and my relationship with Jesus can be whatever I want it to be because he doesn't move and it doesn't fade. I can spend as much time with him as I want. It's not dictated by anything else. He doesn't go, Kevin, stop bugging me. You guys do that, but he doesn't. <laughs> it's when we, when we look at our hope in Christ, grounded in these words, it's difficult because it's not what we experience, but we understand it when we understand who Jesus is. That He's Lord Jesus Christ. That He's God, Savior, Messiah. And nothing changes. And then we get to this piece that I think When I read the rest of this passage, I think if there's something that's going to remove your hope, even though it can't be removed in Christ, but if there's something that's going to feel like it can, when I look at our culture, this is the component. Like, this is it. We're Americans. We like to earn what we get. Actually, I, I feel like we've kind of kind of gone on two, two streams. We like to either earn what we get or we expect everything, right, for nothing. So it's one of those two kind of worlds. When, when, that, when that comes into our faith, 
it can impact our view of who Jesus is and we begin to create a belief system that isn't actually true. And a lot of this can be grounded in how secure are you in your salvation? Because a lot of the conversations I have are, I love Jesus. I have, I believe that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, that he lived the life that I was supposed to live, that he died the death that I deserved, that three days later he conquered sin, Satan, and death forever, and all of my faith and trust are placed in him. But there's also these other things that are required of me. And if I don't do them, just like all the other relationships and hope that I have, I'm gonna find myself in this place of hopelessness. And so I have to keep this hope moving forward by how I behave or how I work or how I act or how much I give or whatever it is. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And so we get into this verse. What I want you to understand is that here's the reason that your hope and your salvation can never be ripped from you because it's not based on you. It really doesn't have anything to do with you. This is what it says. I'm going to start at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This word kept is so powerful. It says that it's kept for you. It's kept for you. It means... There's nothing you can do that's going to prevent God from keeping it for you. It's kept for you. There's a future that's kept for you. There's a life currently that's kept for you. You you can jostle around and you can make certain decisions and you can pull yourself away, but the reality is in Christ, it's kept for you. You can't lose it. Why? Because it's not you that's keeping it. It's Him. When we look at the object of this verb, it not, has nothing to do with the human person. It has everything to do with the one that we've described. It goes back to this thing that's kept is this imperishable, undefiled thing. Unfading thing. It's, that's what it is. But who's keeping it? God. God keeps it. You don't. You get to enjoy it. You get to participate in it. You get to find this enjoyment in living a life that he's given you and the purpose that he's given you, but you don't keep it. He keeps it. It's grounded in him. There is no hope in anything that is dependent upon me. I can just tell you that right now. And I I would venture to say that in all of your experience, no matter how old you are, you understand this. There is no hope in what is dependent upon you. Because it always seems to fail or disappoint us. No matter how much time and energy I pour into something, it may succeed for a little while, but over time, it's going to crumble. 
There's, when it's dependent upon me, I mean, I can even have a long run at something, right? But when it's fully dependent upon me, then what we're realizing is this thing is dependent upon something that is perishable. So it can't last. I was, I'm on the, a board of a seminary in California, and the board president at our last sorry, not the board president, the president of the seminary has recently announced that he wants to retire. And he's been doing this for 20 years and he's tired and he's ready for something different. And he said something to me that impacted me that in a way that has, something hasn't impacted me in a long time. Not like this. And he said, as you guys look for the next president of this university, this seminary, as a board, here are some of the things that I think you need to look for. And one of the things that he said is, we need to find an individual who doesn't see seminary presidency or university presidency as their legacy, because it's not. It's supposed to be a stewardship. And I thought, wow. When we step into something that we're so sold out to, whether it be a business or a work or a relationship or whatever it is, and we say, this is my legacy, then you realize that because it's dependent upon you and that's what your expectations are, that you're already starting with a step behind. And if we say that's gonna be my legacy and we know that it is perishable and defilable (laughs) and fading, then what we're really saying is, my legacy is gonna crumble. It's interesting because if you talk to people like, oh, I built this empire on this earth and then I passed it on to my kids and it just crumbled. (laughs) I was talking to somebody recently who was in the restaurant business and they had this restaurant and they love this restaurant and it's done so well, but not one of their kids wants to take it over. And so they're like, I'm gonna sell it, it's gonna look different. I mean, it could just be gone. He's like, this is what my legacy is, and nobody wants it. And I'm thinking, no, it's not a legacy. What's your legacy, Jesus? It's a stewardship. Your friendships are stewardships. Your marriage is a stewardship. Your work is a stewardship. Whatever he gives you to to be in charge of or to lead or, or influence, it's a stewardship. And we're to steward his blessings and his gifts to the best of our ability by his grace. But everything, a steward, this is the difference. When a steward steps into something and they know it's a stewardship, and and they go, I'm viewing this as a stewardship from the Lord, not a legacy for me, then you don't make it about yourself. You make it about him. And you know that as I steward this, because the Lord has gifted me with the opportunity to steward something maybe very important, like a marriage and kids. They're not yours. They belong to Jesus. We steward them while they're here. They're not my legacy. They're my stewardship. And when we see it that way, it changes everything. Because we realize it isn't dependent upon me because it can't be. And if it is, it's going to fail. So there's this moment where we step back and we go, Lord, 
You have allowed me time on this earth. You have brought me to faith in you. You give me new breath and new life every single day in Christ. You give me a salvation that is perfect and grounded in you and not dependent upon me. And then you give me blessings in my life to steward for you. Lord, help me steward those to the best of my ability. Give me joy in what you've given me to steward. But I know that it's not dependent upon me because my hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone because he's what doesn't change. If I lose everything else, if I'm a poor steward, I still have Jesus. If somebody else whose stewardship I am under is doing a poor job, I still have Jesus. I have this thing that can't be corrupted that is imperishable and does not fade. He keeps it. He keeps it. This should be one of the greatest celebrations that Christ followers should ever experience. Because we don't experience this in anything else. Everything else feels like it's dependent upon you. This is not. That's why we can put hope in it. I don't put much hope in things that are dependent upon me. I do initially, but then I'm like, okay, I'm bored of this. Jesus doesn't go, God, I'm so bored of this. Like years and years and years, like when are you gonna get it? There's two examples of this that I wanna show you in scripture very quickly, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just gonna give you, because this passage of scripture was written by a guy named Peter. And Peter is an interesting character in scripture, right? I relate to him in so many ways, in other ways I'm like, ugh. But Peter is always the guy that puts his foot in his mouth. But he's a man of action. He will st- he's the one that stepped out of the boat to walk on the water. And I'm like, why didn't the other disciples do that? You ever ask yourself that? Like, if, if my friend had stepped out of the boat and was walking on water toward Jesus, I'd be like, I'm in. Nobody else did it. Peter was constantly saying things because he was the first to speak and he often didn't think about what he said before he spoke. And so he gets the most rebukes from Jesus, but he also gets the most praise. It's fascinating. Peter's an interesting guy. There's two stories that that really kind of struck me. And what I want to do is try to, now that you kind of understand the hope that we have in Christ and what it's grounded in, it's not dependent upon you, I want to make this as practical for you as I can. So here's two examples in Peter's life. The first, we've got this moment in John, and Jesus has fed the 5,000, and he's gone into, he sent his, his disciples across, and anyway, they end up over to this other side. And people who he has fed have followed him because they're hungry and they're like, this guy can make food out of nothing. That's crazy cool, right? And so they come and it says that they're basically coming because they're hungry and they wanna see another miracle. And it's like, feed me, feed me, feed me. I don't have to work for this. If I just follow this guy around, he'll take care of me. And in the midst of that, Jesus gives this crazy teaching. Like everybody, I always love this. Like people like, who's the greatest teacher that's ever lived? Jesus. Why? Because he's the only teacher that's ever presented truth with every single thing that he says. And he presents it perfectly for us to understand. But oftentimes people, I think the world looks at Jesus and they're like, oh man, he built this huge crowd. And I'm like, do you know how many people are constantly walking away from Jesus? I mean, Jesus was such a problem that the world went, you have to die. So 
not everything that Jesus said was easy to understand. One of the teachings comes at this moment, and he's teaching about what's going to be communion. And he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and the symbolism and all of this. And people are listening to this, and they're literally grumbling. This is a hard teaching. I don't understand this. This is difficult. What do we do? And Jesus keeps teaching the same thing. Like, Jesus, you didn't really mean that. You meant this, right? Like, this is really hard for us to understand. Can you break this down so that it's really simple? And Jesus is like, nope, that's it. This is the teaching. And it says that people literally went, this is too hard, and turned around and walked away from Jesus. And then Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, are you guys, are you guys gonna leave me too? Because I know it's a hard teaching. And Peter says, where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. And you go, was the issue that Peter understood the teaching? No. We still debate that teaching today. It's not that Peter was set aside in this position where he's like, oh, I really get it. And like, I'm on board. Let's go. What was different in Peter's response? Peter refused to let the hope that he had in Jesus fade because he knew who Jesus was. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can I possibly go? I can go somewhere else, but there's no hope in that. The only hope I have is in you. So how do we practically use that? There are moments when things get hard. There are moments when things feel like they're being attacked. There are moments when you go, I don't even understand. I've had moments where I'm like, what are you doing, God? And people will say, well, is it time to walk away? Is it time to try something new? And for those of us who understand that we have a hope that isn't dependent upon me, but dependent upon who he is and he can't move and he can't lie and he is the savior, then you say no, because there's nowhere else for me to go. My hope is in him and him alone. So when I see these weird things in scripture, I go, I don't understand but I know where my hope is. At another moment where Peter was at probably his lowest moment in all of scripture that we see, and it's where he's denied Jesus three times. He, he was threatened by a little girl, if you know the story. Sitting around like a, a picture, and I know it's not this, but I picture like Jesus has been arrested and things are happening, and there's this like, it's a cold day, I don't know, this is how I picture it. And there's like a barrel of fire, right? And people are like warming their hands by this barrel and watching what's going on. And Peter's there warming his hand and kind of paying attention and listening to what's happening. And this little girl goes to him and he goes, aren't you one of them? And he denies him three times. And I don't know, like, we have a, a, we have a moment where when that happens, it says in the scriptures that when Peter denied Jesus the third time, that Jesus' eye caught Peter's eye. I can't imagine what was in that look, right? And when I say I can't imagine what was in that look, I can't imagine what was in Peter's look, because I know what was in Jesus's look. What was in Jesus's look? I love you. I love you. You keep your hope in me, because everything that I told you is gonna happen is about to happen. I even told you you were gonna do this, and you denied it. You keep your hope in me. And then Jesus dies and comes back three days later and there's this crazy moment with Thomas and Jesus teaching and we have a whole bunch of different stories. But Peter seems to be getting frustrated 
at the resurrection of Jesus because there's not this connection. It feels different. He doesn't know what to do. And it says that he just goes, I'm going fishing. And he grabs his cronies and off they go into a boat. And I don't know what's going on in his head. We know that his, pl- his hope is in Jesus, but he's confused. It's like, man, I blew it. Do I, do I still have this relationship? Like, what do I do? What is, like, what, how do I live now? And it says that while they were fishing and they weren't catching anything, it says that Jesus comes up. So they're out in the lake and Jesus walks up on the shore and John recognizes and says, that's Jesus. And what does Peter do? He does something really bizarre. He puts on his clothes and jumps in the water. Now I have a whole lot of theories as to why he put on his clothes to jump in the water. We'll talk about that another day. But he jumps in the water and he starts to swim towards Jesus. We don't have recorded what the conversation is that goes on between Jesus and Peter when Peter first gets there. But here's the thing. I think about this one a lot. Because in Peter's most desperate hour when he probably feels the dirtiest and the most perishable and the most defiled, when he's literally said, I'm denying you three times to a little girl, when he, really, when he literally did and accomplished the sin that Jesus predicted after he said he wouldn't. I mean, that's low. I have, a, I have a, this crazy analogy where I believe that like Judas and Peter at this moment are in the exact same spot. But Judas, who doesn't put his faith and trust in Jesus, who doesn't have hope in Christ, becomes hopeless and goes and kills himself. Peter, who's in the same position, the same denial, sees Jesus, and what does he do? He swims to him. He runs to him. He gets to him as fast as he can possibly get to him. Why? Because where else is he going to go? That's where his hope is. It doesn't have anything to do with him. Well, what do you do with that story? Well, It's this, Peter, regardless of the mistakes that he made, he knew where his hope was. And as he processed it, he went, what am I doing? That's my hope, why am I running away from it? I need to run to it. At his lowest point, he doesn't run away from Jesus, he runs to him. Why? Because he had his hope in Jesus. And he knew it had nothing to do with him. He knew that when he got on that shore, that Jesus was gonna say, hey Peter, what's up? Welcome, glad you came. We got work to do. I got a job for you, and it's gonna be beautiful. I got some things you need to steward. And it's not grounded in the mistakes that you've made in the past, you'll learn from those, and you can have experiences that will help you, but this is all gonna be grounded in the hope. You've already failed, but you're gonna be used powerfully because it's not about you, it's about me. Where's your hope? I use those two stories because of this, and I'll I'll close here. You know where your hope is, truly grounded, when you experience things like that, and you see where you go. That's how you see your heart. Do you keep running towards Jesus? When you hit that low point, you go, man, I'm just not worthy. You're not worthy, great, so run to Jesus. Do you get to a place where it gets so hard and the teaching is hard and you just don't understand and the world is pressuring and all these other things are out there and you just go, I gotta go somewhere else? Or is your hope in Christ to the point you go, where else am I gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. So I'm gonna trust that. 
okay, this is how you evaluate it. Like, this is where it contradicts. We place our hope in things that fails us. We place our hope in Jesus that doesn't fail us, but how do we know? How do we differentiate between these two things? And that's how it's done. You view your heart, what you truly believe, based upon what you do when you hit those circumstances. But here's the thing, like, I'm just gonna let you know, no matter what you've done in the past, tomorrow's a new day. And the hope of Jesus is still there. It's undefiled, it's imperishable, and it's unfading. It's always there. And this is why Christmas is so cool. Because we get to be reminded of the hope of Christ. And it has nothing to do with you. Our hope is in something perfect and pure and undefiled and imperishable and unfading. So if you're here today and you're like, man, I've never experienced that before, you can. What do you have to do? You need to know Jesus. But for the church, I'm going, you realize what you've been given? You've been given a hope that can't be taken from you. The question is, are we going to utilize it or not? It's still there. What are you going to do? The team's going to come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs. As always, the communion elements are here. We use this as an opportunity for you to, to wrestle with what's going on. But I, I will tell you, like, my heart in this is maybe there's some conviction. Maybe there's some things that need to change. But maybe you just need to celebrate better. Like, maybe you need to stop having this be about you and celebrate the fact that it doesn't have to be. Like, do you realize what a burden lifter that is? Maybe you just need to throw your arms in the air and praise the Lord and go, thank you that it's not dependent upon me. Maybe you need to reevaluate the way that you steward the things that the Lord gives you. I don't know. It's your time, so do with it as you see fit. So I'm gonna pray. We'll sing. Communion elements are here. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I am grateful that our hope is grounded in Christ and not us. Lord, I know that through all the experiences that we go through, even this past week, Lord, we placed our hope in something that has failed us. We, we hoped that something would happen that didn't. Or, Lord, we, we banked on the fact that something or someone was going to do something that, that just didn't come through. Or Lord, there's even some of us who have placed our hope in something that actually happened this week, but now we're hoping it's going to happen again and we just don't have the assurance of that. So Lord, I just pray right now that for everyone in this room, that we would understand the difference between hoping in something that is perishable looks different than hoping in you. Lord, Use your Holy Spirit by your grace to separate us from comparing those things in a way that would be devastating, but understanding that experiences with you and hope in you is different because of who you are. Lord, thank you that you never lie to us, that you never change, that you, your love for us never dwindles. We thank you that our hope can be placed in what Jesus has done. 
And Lord, I ask that if there's anyone in this room right now who has never placed their hope in Christ, that you would regenerate their heart in this moment. And Lord, for your church, Lord, may we represent the hope of Christ to others in a way that is beautiful. When we go through things that are hard, when we're disappointed, when we're discouraged, Lord, remind us those things aren't our legacy, but you are. And that nothing can take that from us. So Lord, even in this moment, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us to hope more in you. And then we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.